Hi everyone, this is Hazel speaking. I hope you're all safe and well, given the present circumstances. This episode of the Curious Climber podcast, I bring you Sky Yardini. Sky is a therapist and a social change maker, originally from Israel and now based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's currently the therapeutic director of the Climbing Grief Fund. And so, yes, we are talking about grief and this conversation is a little bit somber, a little bit heavy at times, but it could also be quite pertinent and useful for people at the moment. So, yeah, we mostly focus on the concept of grief, Sky's personal experience with grief, what the grief fund does. So it's a organization involved in kind of the process of normalizing and destigmatizing grief and uh, also provides support for those members of our community who are struggling with grief. So kind of connecting them with therapists. And I think kind of the belief at the heart of the grief fund is this idea that only through sharing our experiences of grief do we um, heal essentially. Um, We also talk a little bit about the Israel-Palestine conflict because Sky was, uh, did some work in dialogue facilitation there. So we talk a little bit about his his experiences with that. Um, And we go into a little bit about risk kind of this concept of is it worth it when we consider the kind of collective grief that our community goes through. I know I personally have had many friends die in the mountains and so yeah we talk a little bit about that and then we talk a bit about climbing and other kind of uncomfortable adventurous activities as a means to deal with trauma so kind of like both sides of the coin there. Uh, So yeah, it's a little bit heavy at times, but it ends on a light and positive note. And I hope you enjoy. Hi Sky, thanks for coming on. (laughs) Of course, my pleasure. I really appreciate your time doing this. Um, so maybe just first, just let us know how you are, given the uh, current circumstances that we're in at the moment. Um, well, I'm trying to take it day by day. Um, and I'm doing all right, I suppose, you know, given all the uncertainty that's happening and the impact both on my family and friends and also myself and on work and all that. And it's just, it's real. And um, the reality of the pandemic and how fast it's spreading, the circle is getting tighter and tighter. And so more and more people that I know are not only getting being impacted by the pandemic and it's and how it's playing out, but also um, people that I know and love are being, um, are getting sick. Mm-hmm. And that's just a reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. Hard times. Um, Well, maybe let's just chat about you a little bit, you know, like 
where you were born, what your upbringing was like, and just just give us a little bit of a journey, an idea of the journey that you've come on to get where you are now. So I was born in Israel, um, lived there for most of my life. I I did grow up in the U.S. between ages of four and eleven, so experienced um, different cultures and coming back to Israel, growing up there. Um, becoming really involved in community work um through social movements and um and like being brought up with values of being a contributing part of society and um giving whatever i can um both socially and then i went to the military as well and i got accepted to the special forces and um was in my service for four and a half years um, being in several wars, um, a lot of combat experience, pretty, yeah, it was very, um, had a lot of experiences there on both like really incredible growth and exploration and also really horrendous, scary, um, traumatic experiences too. Mm. Um, and then, then I also started to rock climb and um, started traveling as well. And, and after I finished my military service, really going on some long climbing trips and understanding who I am and not like outside of the context of Israel um, and the military, um, which really led me to understand that there's more to me than, than that. And um understood that I wanted to become a social worker. Um, so that's those same values of contributing to society, but more in a way of, uh, in a generative way, uh, to generate and to build and to create um, towards nonviolence. And then the summer of 2011 happened, which was a huge game changer for me. I don't know if you remember Hazel, but that was a summer and a time where there are a lot of social movements happening around the world. Um, a lot of people in the streets, in Madrid, in Lisbon, in London, in New York, um, and also in Israel as well. Um, so I found myself living in a tent village um, for several months and really creating the social movement towards empowerment of society and the citizens and creating more grassroots movement. And that's where I really shifted towards um, social change and not only direct change and started to see myself as a social change maker. And that started to really shape my identity and um, see that I can also have a wide impact too. And not only like the ripple effect of my work um, and not only the direct impact of my work. And then I finished social work school, went on a long climbing road trip, had a terrible accident in New Zealand, um, was hospitalized, got surgery there, came back and kind of like started over to reinvent myself because I was in a wheelchair for a while. And then one of my best friends told me about this program in Jordan, uh, bringing social change makers from all over the Middle East to create community and dialogue and um, work, up, work on leadership um, and collaboration on a Middle Eastern context beyond borders. And yeah, at first I was like, you know, I don't have any 
um, experience with working with Palestinians or just in that world. Um, all of my experience was more internal society. And he was like, dude, just apply and go. And it really changed my life. It really exposed me to a different way of being um, with myself, with other people, how to be in conflict and, and really see and practice how there's this quote that I really love, um, how conflict is the spirit of the relationship asking itself to deepen. And so how um, to just reframe conflict and just to see how a part of life it is and um, how this is an opportunity for us to lean in. And it is hard and messy and um, yeah, making a lot of mistakes on the way. And it just like, I gained my life back through that experience. And since then I've been facilitating with them for the past seven or eight years now, um, both in Jordan and also here in the US um, around different contexts. And okay. um, yeah. So what does that facilitation actually look like? Just speaking with different groups that have different, like they want something different that conflicts and then, I mean, what does that actually look like in real time? So it's actually valuing everyone's experience um, and making space for everyone, regardless of their background, of what they look like, their opinion, uh, or what's on their heart. Um, and understanding that within community, um, if we make space for everyone's experience and for everyone to, to show up and share, um, and also have fun together too, um, and get to know each other on personal levels. Um, it's just, it can be so healing on so many different levels. Um, and it's not disregarding the pain and it's not disregarding the oppression and the war and, um, all the violence and trauma that's happening. And it allows or offers a way to help move through it together. Okay. I mean, okay. So taking sort of Palestine and Israel, how is that possible? Well, whilst the two countries stay at war. Cool. Um, takes creativity. Um, that's why we go to Jordan because that's a more of a, um, a neutral place that people can meet. It's kind of like the Switzerland of the Middle East. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's a place where people can, can gather. We go to Wadi Rum in the desert. Um, and so I always combine that with climbing trips, which was great. And, um, yeah. And also the fact of being in nature and being held in nature and so beautiful out there and um really powerful and allowing nature nature to also do its work around um its healing um the fun that it can facilitate too and um yeah and it's beauty so so like bringing these two groups together do you feel like um along with all of the kind of like personal healing that goes on, do you think that actually changes ideas which may have a positive ripple effect for like more macro changes in that area? I do. And I've seen it. Um, and I'll talk from my personal experience. 
um, I was brought up in a system where um, I was taught and was wired to see Palestinians and Arabs as enemies. And, um, and just disrupting that paradigm of see, instead of seeing someone as an enemy um, or whole people as an enemy, to see them actually as partners. And to just reframe that of like, yeah, my existence doesn't necessarily have to be at the expense of your existence. We can actually work together and how, and how do we um, uplift each other's existence and knowing that their liberation is also my liberation. Mm. Um, and so that's my personal experience and gained incredible friendships um, and a lot of meaning to be a part of this community and movement to do something different. Um, and the collaborations that I've seen and been a part of um, that really create actual change, that it's not just talk. Talk is important um, and creating relationships are incredibly important because that's, I believe, where it starts and begins. That's not where it ends. And really creating organizations, programs, projects of um, to generate change mm. on different on different levels. Do you think positive change is coming for that area or you think it's still a long way off? It's such a long way off, I believe, because um, so many people are doing such incredible things that A, not a lot of people know about and B, is countered by a system that continues to perpetuate the status quo of of violence and separation and so it's really hard like to work against that kind of system yeah um and it's mostly hard i think to not get burnt out yeah and so you know like obviously people like to oversimplify things and they like to blame and point fingers do you feel like one of the sides is more to blame or do you think it's worth pointing fingers or do you think that that's not the way forward? One of my all-time teachers and mentors is Brene Brown and she speaks so beautifully about blame, shame and empathy where um, empathy is actually an anecdote to blame and shame and if we can bring empathy and understanding and making space for other people's experience and not only get caught up in our own pain. Um, Cause that's where I can get stuck in my own patterns and spirals of, of blame and shame. There's not a lot of way forward. And so, yeah, I, I choose to not see it that way. Um, I choose to, to take responsibility um, of my own actions. I chose to take responsibility of the context that I was born into and do as much as I can to make things different. But if we, as a society, get stuck on who is to blame, um, I believe that it's really hard to to move forward. I, I do think that there is place to take responsibility over actions. That is absolutely, yeah. Right, yeah. Well, that sounds really interesting. Um, you know, on a personal level, what kind of skills do you think that you learn and still learning from doing that, that you're now bringing to the world of climbing? I think one of the main things that I continue to work on um, is sitting in discomfort, um, sitting in my own discomfort, 
um, especially speaking about my own shame um, of the things that that I've done, the um, the the harm that I've been a part of. Um, that's extremely uncomfortable to sit with and to look in the mirror sometimes. And um, in that, to recognize that I've made mistakes and to take responsibility for them, that's really uncomfortable. And um, and with that, also sitting in discomfort with others. And um, grief can be extremely uncomfortable. Um, and it is um, not fun or sexy to feel or to be in the presence of. And I feel like that's something that I that I've been expanding um, with time. So that's that's one. Another is that there's no one way to do it. Um, there's no one way to to create community. There's no one way um, to love. There's no one way to do peace, and there's no one way to grieve either. Um, so to just allow yeah allow whatever is happening and is emerging to happen mm. i just tell the listener that you you're part of the grief fund which is an organization is it just affiliated with it or is it actually part of the access fund so it's part of the american alpine club oh alpine club that's it so yeah. mix up those two um, all the time <laughs> mm-hmm. My dear friend, Madeline Storkin, um, started it a bit less than two years ago now. Um, and a bit after she did a few fundraisers, um, I joined her as a therapeutic director of the Climbing Grief Fund. And since then, we've been um, pushing it together with her wife, Hannah Taylor, who has been working on our film, um, and, a several, and several other volunteers that have been helping us on the way. Yeah. So yeah, just, just talking about discomfort when I was kind of preparing for this podcast, I was watching some of the videos that are on the site and I was, I was crying my eyes out. They're so emotional. They're so sad, but they're, they're also so powerful. And just explain to the listeners, it's it's people who've bravely come and sat in front of a camera. And I mean, just that in itself is pretty mind boggling to me to come and sit in front of a camera and share your thoughts and feelings around what's probably one of the hardest things that ever happened to you, right? The, the loss of someone that's close to you. Um, what was the thinking around those videos? How does that fit in with the overall kind of aims of the grief fund? Um, first of all, I want to relate to your experience too. As the interviewer for several of those interviews, um, it is emotional and it is uncomfortable um, and it is, and it can be hard. And I also believe that it's a part of life. And I was so grateful and privileged to, to be a part of that project, to make space for those parts of life, because I truly believe Hazel that um, the more access we people have to all aspects of life, that enriches life. It makes life richer. And um, knowing that the deepest pains can also help me um, access the the most incredible joy and happiness and fulfillment and passion 
Um, and it's just like a whole, I don't know, rainbow of emotions. Um, and, and seeing those videos and being a part of them, I saw all of those emotions because in, in those videos, there's love and loss and grief and sadness and longing. Um, and, um, yeah, and a lot. And the intention behind that project is to show our community that it is an integral part of our lives as climbers and as humans. Um, and it's important to, to make space for it, um, to normalize it, to destigmatize it, um, to show that um, a lot of people and leaders in our community are engaging in those conversations and in that self-reflection and are willing to talk about it. And hopefully it will continue to build and expand and empower others to share their stories and whatever mediums and platforms they have um, from a belief that it's a part of our healing process as well. That sharing is a part of our healing process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, you know, in, in whatever depth you want to go into, just your own experience with grief and, and what you learned from that. Sure. Um, so two and a half years ago, I, I lost, um, my climbing partner and one of my best friends in a climbing accident. He was climbing with his pregnant wife at the time, um, alone in Northern Israel and, and died. Um, and even though I've been a part of and witnessed um, a lot of violence and death in my life that had a really hard impact on me. Um, It broke me. Uh, It cracked me open um, in ways that I in ways that I didn't know. And um, yeah, and it's been hard ever since. Um, I miss him terribly. His name was Sela. And, and it's also allowed me to a access a whole other part of me, even though I've been doing this work for a long time. Um, and also continue to evolve my relationship with my climbing. Um, and so allowing the sadness and the heartbreak, um, and also allowing moving through it into creating something generative, um, and creative and meaningful. And like these past year and a half, I've been dedicating all of my work with the climate grief fund to him. And that's one of my ways to honor him and keep him alive inside me. Um, yeah, so th- I have a lot of stake in this work. Yeah. 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 And did it make you feel differently about risk as a climber? Um, no. No, I believe that I was careful before um, with judgment and still taking risks. Um, 
what it did do is bring more fear in. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially like that first year, year and a half, I was still going out and doing um, the same adventures that I used to do. Um, but like waves of fear and anxiety even uh, would come more often. Mm. And I had, um, yeah, and it was hard to grapple with. It was hard to navigate. Um, and it did allow me to have a different uh, relationship with um, bailing off of a route, off of a, a day, an expedition, um, and giving me more context like that that climb will be there tomorrow. It'll be there next week. And um, and so, yeah, m- maybe the answer to your question is yes. I, it did allow me to have a, a different relationship with risk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I do a lot of mental training, coaching, and I feel like any kind of traumatic experience, even if it's not related to climbing or risk at all, it can still dramatically shrink our comfort zones when it comes to any kind of other stress. So it might have even been that it wasn't like the context made you more fearful. It's just having so much, so much emotion and trauma held in your body around loss. Um, that I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Um, and especially when um, Sela's death, death was in the context of climbing, even more so. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, he died from a loose, huge piece of rock that fell and crushed him. And, um, and so that trauma that lives inside my body and going out in the Alpine and the reality of loose rock, that that is just mm. a part of being out in the mountains both the the potential and the possibility of it happening and when it happens um it just really activates me in different ways now Mm. yeah and and that's where my partnerships are really important too and like really checking in with them and having a, a a good just good communication with my climbing partners and um understanding that that's just um a part of my life now yeah yeah it's interesting i i read in on the website or i think maybe you've said this idea of collective grief what does that mean to you um to me it means a few things one is the the ripple effect of a tragedy that um one's person one person's death can affect the whole community and as a community, we grieve for that loss of a person. Um, and so that, that, that is one aspect of collective grief, in my opinion. Another part of collective grief is not only a specific tragedy, but it can be things like this pandemic. It can be things like climate change, um, that we as a community are grieving um, something that is bigger than one accident, one death, and understanding that things are different now. And, um, and if we as a community make space 
to grieve collectively, um, that's that can also be a part of our healing as a community. Right. Yeah, that's interesting because in some ways it seems a bit like a, a kind of paradox because obviously everyone's grief has their own color to it mm-hmm. and everyone deals with it differently and everyone, you know, maybe there's some people who don't want to talk about it. Um, do you feel like, yeah, what are your thoughts on kind of the different ways that people grieve and how does that fit in with the idea of collective grief? I truly believe that everyone grieves differently and even people who choose not to grieve um, or express their grief, that is their way to, to cope, to deal with, to engage with grief. Um, I also believe that there is a spectrum of healthy and unhealthy ways of grieving. Mm. Um, and ultimately to each their own. And I think that's important to, um, to recognize. Um, and in that there's a huge spectrum of, from introverts and extroverts of people that, um, are verbal processors and really, um, get a lot out of sharing their stories in different ways and people who, um, choose to do it alone. Um, also want to make a, um, a differentiation between grieving alone and being in isolation. And, and that's different. Um, especially when we're talking about healthy and unhealthy ways of grieving. Um, and people who um, engage in metaphors and ritual and ceremony um, and, and explore their own spirituality through their grief. And so there's so many different ways of grieving. And if we're talking about collective grief, I also believe that um, kind of like social change, um, in social action, even people who are not engaged directly in social action. Um, that's why people who are, um, engaging in different ways complete each other. And so as a collective, um, we're creating a whole, um, because we're different and all that diversity creates a wholeness. Um, cause otherwise we don't only have people who do this or do that. And that is not whole. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I'm interested in this idea, you know, cause you, we have collective grief, right. And from the outs an outsider's perspective, looking in on our community, they might say, well, what you guys do is extreme. It's crazy. It's risky. And, and then you're grieving people that have died doing what you do. So there's obviously this collective joy, right, that we experience as climbers because that's why we we do it. And we, those of us who do go climbing, we have decided that that joy outweighs the risk. And it also outweighs the grief, right? Because not only when we climb are we potentially risking our own lives, but we're also risking grieving because the people we're climbing with, we get close to them and they are also doing, doing this dangerous thing too. And I feel like in maybe in different areas of climbing, this is more apparent. So if you look at alpinism, um, there's a lot, a bit, there's a, there's a deeper conversation around this question. Is it worth it? Um, 
yeah, what are your thoughts on that? And what's kind of come up from the grief fund? Have 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 people demonstrated feelings around the idea that maybe it isn't worth it? Um, and yeah, you know, what what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so that takes me to think about two things. One, it, it makes me think about my mom. And um, when I go out to the mountains, um, that's who I think of. And that is who is going to be impacted the most. Um, not me and not my climbing partner or not anyone else is going to be my mom. And, and so, yeah, like the connection between grief and risk um, and risk management and the one of the ultimate questions of, is it worth it? Um, for me, is it is what I'm doing worth risking breaking my mom? And that's that's my question. That's the question that I engage with. People have other considerations. Um, and connecting that to the Climbing Grief Fund, um, and it, it is not my intention or Madeline's, Madeline's intention or us as an organization to... Um, to really engage in that question, is it worth it? Um, it's more understanding that death, loss, and grief is an inherent part of our lives as climbers. And while we choose to have climbing be such a big part of our lives in different ways, um, this is just a part of it. And so making space and addressing something that is just a part of our life. Um, and not trying to to talk about risk management or questions of is it worth it. We each make our own decisions, and and we as a community, like we engage in a lot of risk, and that's our choice. And then what? And then what happens? So it's more of like um, it's a the aftermath. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So this idea that you know maybe we in the past talked more about risk management than we have about the consequences of, of what happens when it goes wrong. Um, I don't know if I've sort of noticed, you know, the client, our climbing is obviously a male dominated sport. It's becoming less so. And men, not to just generalize too much, you know, aren't quite as good at talking about their feelings do you think that has contributed to our, maybe the lack of conversation around this or do you think uh, otherwise? Um, I completely agree. I think that um, an inherent part of climbing and us as a climbing community actually has to do with our callus on our hands and how that protects us. You know, so someone who hasn't climbed in a long time or ever goes on the rock and gets um, blisters and flappers and, and is very exposed to to pain. And the more we climb, the more we build that callus on our, on our hands and that protects us from getting those flappers and getting injured. And so that callus um, can also be uh, connected with masculinity. Um, it is um, like a layer of protection 
because um, it hurts or it's painful when we get injured. And I believe that um, we, as a climate community, and also all of us individually, we have to, um, or it is important that we find the balance between how much we protect ourselves and callous ourselves and, and maybe numb and avoid um, talking about our feelings and um, and exposing ourselves and being vulnerable um, and then really engaging in those feelings. Um, because ultimately I believe in the, like in the balance and integration between femininity and masculinity um, that neither one is the way or the answer, but the meeting point of both of them. And so as we continue developing and evolving as a community where there's more women um, in leadership, in mentorship, in um, that we have more female voices in our community, hopefully that will also um, lead us in a way, in a direction of balance, of integration, um, because absolutely, it I think it has a huge role in the way that our community has been constructed um, over the years and over the generations. And um, I'm really excited to see and also be a part of changing that as a man. Mm, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like the, um, the metaphor of the callus is like, doesn't quite carry because it's almost like there's an injury underneath the callus, if you know what I mean. So like, mm -hmm. you know, say there's like a grief or a trauma or emotion and then it's, it's still there. It, whereas like gradually exposing yourself to something stressful or traumatic builds a, a callus, a protective layer that's, that's useful. But then if there's trauma or injury there that's not dealt with, People say that way, right? It's like you can't hide from your emotions. You can't avoid them. Um, I guess maybe is it the same with grief? Like you can't bury it. I don't know if people can or cannot bury it. I I believe that it's not healthy to bury it. Um, I am a strong activist for or advocate. Sorry, advocate to in, engage in in emotions and in grief when it does happen and to engage in trauma when it does happen. Um, I also believe that we all have experienced and have been exposed to different um, levels and layers of grief and trauma. And, um, and you're absolutely right. It doesn't go away. Um, it builds up, it can hide, it can, um, manifest in different ways. And um, I believe that it's important to, in the world of mindfulness, it's called befriending. It's befriending an emotion. And it doesn't mean that it's comfortable or easy or fun. Um, I just think it's a part of being human. So, is it the, the befriending? Is that a kind of acceptance that it's there? Yeah. Yeah. A kind of openness mm -hmm. towards it. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So you, you're actually a therapist, right? Yes. Yeah. And so with the grief fund, do you, 
work with people who come to the grief fund for help or do you work independently of that or do you do both um so as the therapeutic director of the climate grief fund um i have several hats in different roles um as a therapist um, one of the things that i do is i facilitate workshops um we have several types of workshops one is our resilience workshops um, that's more of a skill-based tools, um, building resilience. And another is a more process-oriented uh, grief and trauma workshop. And um, this past year, we did a pilot and we went around all the Kraken Classics um, around the U.S. and facilitated these workshops, myself and a few other therapists. I didn't do it, I didn't do it all by myself. Um, and so that's something that I've been doing and I continue to do. Um, hopefully we'll be offering this to companies as well. Uh, cause I also believe that, um, us as a community need to take responsibility and make space for this. And also the industry, uh, needs to match that as well. And, um, I found myself being, um, one of the people on call. And so if and when a tragedy does happen, um, either people contact me like directly or are referred to me by others um, through email, text, phone. And I don't do therapy with them. I can support them and be a responder in what they need at the time. And then I can share with them some resources and refer them to other therapists. But it's important to for me to not be doing therapy in those times um although it is important for me as a therapist to be doing it um to understand um what they're going through to be able to hold and support um when they do reach out yeah so like a kind of emergency first mental health first aid kind of thing mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. yeah so what other projects does the climbing grief fund have going at the moment so recently we launched our grants um, project, which means that we're offering money to people in the form of grants to offset costs for therapy um, or any kind of um, professionally facilitated experience um, that goes towards healing process of grief and, and, or, and or trauma. Um, on our website, we have our mental health directory, which means that, um, at least in the U.S., and we're trying to build an international um, directory as well, of therapists and other mental health providers that have an affiliation with climbing and the climbing community and that are offering their services um, to support people um, in their process. Another another piece on our website is a psychoeducation um, page where there's just a lot of content and material educating people on grief and trauma and um, and the intersection between the two and, and other things, both in the form of uh, video and written. Um, Another project is the Story Archive project, which uh, we talked about, and that's the interviews of people who um, are sharing their experience with their grief. Um, and we have a few 
um, projects that we're working on and in the works that hopefully will be launching soon as one is an ambassador um, program where leaders in the community can be our ambassadors on the ground if and when uh, things do happen. So they will be the contact person to um, to reach out and and be of support. Um, another thing is, like I said before, offering workshops outside of festivals and um, and companies. And our biggest project right now is the film um, that filmmaker Hannah Taylor has been working on and is almost finished. And um, we're working on the premiere and in response to coronavirus, how we're gonna do that now. Mm. Um, yeah, hopefully launching towards the end of the spring. And um, the vision of that is also to do a tour with it. Um, so we'll be entering communities um, that will invite us in and we'll be screening the film and maybe doing a presentation and a workshop and just creating a conversation about this and, and um, having it less of a taboo. Mm. Yeah, I guess we haven't really touched upon that yet. This kind of stigma and taboo around showing grief. What are your thoughts on that? Um, like we've mentioned a few times during this interview, like I believe that as it's a part of life, um, we should make it more accessible and um, not shy away from the uncomfortable conversations that can come with it. And um, yeah, and it doesn't have to look one way or the other. Um, grief can also be um, telling stories um, and laughing together. And, um, you know, j just being in a way that is intentional or meaningful that honors the grief that someone's experiencing. Um, and so I, I hope by doing this work, we're also able to, to re release that, that concept or the notion of um, that it is to because um, yeah, it, it just makes life more richer in my opinion. I feel like a lot of the taboo around grief comes from the fact that people feel like it's so sensitive. So, you know, and like if I hear, you know, for example, you have a conversation and you just ask someone, um, oh, what do your mom do? And they tell you that, you, that your mom's died, that she's died or, or whatever, right? It feels like there's a taboo around it because it's obviously so painful and sensitive for that person that the that you don't know what to say. You don't know how to react. So is there anything that you can teach or suggest for not those who are grieving, but the people who are around those that are grieving? Totally. Um, so I think what you just said is a perfect example of how death can um, like really connect to people's fragility and, and like not knowing how to... Um, to be in the presence of grief. So they're tiptoeing around or they start to mumble or, um, or not knowing what to say. And, um, and just acknowledging that, oh, that's actually my fragility and that's, that's making it about me. And mm -hmm. so um, once I'm able to recognize that, I can hopefully put it aside because I want to be there for the other person. I want to 
show that I'm with them. I want to express my condolences um, and and not be awkward because it can be awkward as well. Yeah. And um, and my experience of being both on the grieving side and the person who is in the presence of someone who is grieving. Um, the last thing we want is like the fragility or the awkwardness. And so just being authentic, mm. um, just saying, I'm sorry. Mm. Is there anything else you want to say about it? Um, like asking the person what they want. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they maybe just not want to talk about it. Maybe they want to just mm. sit in silence. Uh, maybe they want to talk about something else and maybe they want to talk and share. And to just make space to listen, um, to try to make it about the other person and not to make it about yourself, I yeah. think is important. Um, and to allow humor when it comes as well. Mm. Um, and notice the difference between humor and sarcasm. Um, and just tracking that too. <laughs> as a Brit, there's no difference. <laughs> <laughs> And I see that in a lot of climbers around. And it's it's important because sarcasm can also be a way of avoiding uncomfortable conversations too. Mm. Um, That's a classic problem for, for British people. <laughs> <laughs> Avoid all the awkward conversations with sarcasm. Mm. Um, so one of the workshops you run is, you called it Building Resilience. Yes. Is that for people who already grieving or is it kind of a bit more preventative or you know what does resilience mean to you and what do those sh workshops look like i really think that um these workshops are accessible to anyone um as a climber as a human i want to build my resilience um both on a preventative way and also um to give me more skills when things happen uh, to show, excuse me, to show up um, and to do that in a way that is helpful uh, and not damaging. And the more skills and tools we can, um, we can learn and practice together, um, A, they can prepare us when, um, when something happens and it can prevent not the um, tragedy itself, but it can prevent um, or, um, I guess, prepare for the impact. Um, understanding what is to come. Uh, one of the contributing factors to symptoms of post-trauma, of PTSD, is lack of resources. And so the more resources we can provide people, um, the more agency and empowerment they feel in the moment. Uh, the, the less helpless they feel, um, which can really help um, mitigate or minimize symptoms of post-trauma after an accident or a tragedy. So th that's an important aspect of, um, of these workshops, of building resilience. Um, and then when something does happen, to, um, to really to be able to um, to respond in a way that is helpful in, on the spot. And so, A, I'm not causing damage to myself, and B, I'm not causing damage or harm to anyone else, and that it's actually um, 
being supportive and helpful. And um, yeah. Okay. Um, one thing I'm really interested in is this idea of trauma and fragility and recovery. And so sort of the way I see it, I don't know if this is correct, but you know, you have, you have your normal kind of like capacity and strength to deal with stress and life and everything. And then a trauma comes along and all of a sudden all of that shrinks, your comfort zone shrinks, you become very fragile. And there's a lot of conversation about how to deal with that. And you often see, um, but because people want to be kind and leave space for trauma and protect people, that there's this can be a tendency to then avoid anything that kind of might remind people of that specific trauma or um, let them get close to that trauma again. And then what you see is you see a sort of negative feedback loop where people get more and more fragile. Do you have any kind of recommendations around how to build that strength back in a kind of kind and compassionate and mm -hmm. gradual way? Yeah, for sure. Um, a, what you're speaking to is the avoidance piece of trauma. And, um, and just for the listeners to bring into context, one of the symptoms um, or the impacts of trauma when someone has experienced a traumatic experience is avoiding other experiences that can either remind them of that same experience or trigger the same emotions. And so what Hazel is talking to is, is just um, how do we engage in that avoidance and maybe start minimizing it? And um, I've had it with myself after Stella's death. And so I'll use myself as an example. Um, a week after he died, a friend of mine took me to um, a new crag that he bolted and asked me to do some first ascents. And um, I was on a climb and it was a bit crumbly and I froze. And I had a, I had a panic attack and I came down and I cried and I had my whole, my own trauma response. And after that, I started to avoid it. I was like, I'm not going to climb again, or at least I'm not going to climb new routes. I'm not going to go up in the Alpine. I'm going to stick to um, well-seasoned, trafficked sport climbs, and that's it. And that's what happened for a while. So I was avoiding, um, again, putting myself either in the same experience or an experience that triggers the same emotions. And, um, and here, I think there are two parallel avenues. One is the healing aspect, to bring healing to those emotions and to that experience. And for me, that's through writing, that's through sharing, that's through my own exploration and reflection of of that experience, of that emotion. Um, and like we talked about before, to try to befriend it and to just accept it. So that's one avenue. And then the other avenue is gradual exposure. 
um, in a really soft, gentle way. Um, and in the world of mindfulness, that's where titrating comes. It's called touch and go, or that's what it means. And it means that, um, you know, you talk a lot about your comfort zone. And so to be in that comfort zone, whatever that may look like for you, and to step out, see what it's like, and then come back in. Mm-hmm. And whenever you're ready, take that step out again, see how that's like, and then come back again. And that's the touch and go. And that's how um, I believe is a healthy and easeful way to gradually expose expose myself back to um, to whatever experience that was that caused the um, the trauma, and to start um, working with that avoidance. Yeah, it's really interesting because as a I coach mental training for climbing, and it's just the exact same process I use to to teach people to get over fear of falling. Mm. So, you know, they start off with this fear around falling and it might be caused by a trauma. Lots of people take bad falls at the start of their climbing career. And then they hear this advice, you know, like, oh, you've just got to like push really hard and take those big falls and you'll get over it. But it has to be so gradually, so gradually exposed, just painstakingly gradual, you know, like starting taking little micro falls on top rope and then building up and... I feel like that that kind of gradual exposure can be applied to a lot of situations. But even more interesting, I feel like, is this kind of using climbing as a way to deal with trauma or at least build resilience. And so I know that you are a wilderness therapist as well. So how do you feel like it can kind of be turned on its head, right? It's like climbing can cause the trauma and we can get over it, but also climbing can protect us from trauma in a way as well, because we build this kind of mental resilience to stress. Absolutely. Um, And again, wanting to bring in the healing aspect of climbing too. I know it has been in my life of just being outside and having those experiences um, in all the different types of climbing people do. Um, I believe that there's also aspects of just healing of how it, um, I don't know, it's hard to even define what healing means. Um, I think anyone can define them, define healing for themselves. Um, And the resilience aspect of climbing, absolutely. Um, Of engaging in failure, in, trying hard in um in stress in both physical mental and emotional distress and still having to um to perform or to communicate or be um clear-headed and make decisions and um and it's so powerful that most types of climbing we don't do it alone and so i also believe that that builds our resilience to to be able to deal with this, these situations together. Mm. And I've also been in an experience where it's been negative. Um, and that maybe can, um, can lead us to the topic of post-traumatic growth, of PTG, mm. of um, the aftermath of growth or the potential of growth after a traumatic event. 
because mm-hmm. either it can um, completely go in in a in a pathological like damaging um, direction that it really causes impairment of my life, and maybe I get I stay there, or um, I also shift into a growth aspect of like okay this is an experience it was hard um it had a certain impact on my life and i can grow from this i can learn from this i can um get a new perspective and do things differently and that also builds resilience Um, as a wilderness therapist i never manipulate that i never um like cause adversity to create resilience i don't believe that that is a way I think people should engage in adversity from choice. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's circumstantial, but me as a therapist, I think it causes more damage actually if I if I am the one who causes it. I actually want to be there to support those processes. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, because I guess um, just using my own experience as a coach, um, no one knows what, anyone else's internal world is like (laughs) so for me you know I can ask someone how they feel and they can tell me uh well I was breathing really really fast and uh, I couldn't see very well and everything um I froze and then you know I can say oh well sounds like you pushed too far right it sounds like you were way too out far outside your comfort zone but yeah it's like people have to we all have to walk into the challenge yourself with choice. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you've mentioned a few times mindfulness. Where does this fit in for you? And you know, you an advocate of meditation as a form of mental strength and resilience, and and how does that fit in with all this? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not a meditator. That's not my form of mindfulness. Um, it just doesn't do it for me. Um, and at first I thought that that was the same, like, oh, mindfulness is meditation. So that's what I need to do. And learning and experiencing and practicing more and more mindfulness, I understand that there are so many different types of mindfulness. And for me, that's embodiment, um, is a lot of my climbing is actually very mindful because I'm, I'm able to be present. I don't lose myself when I climb sometimes or most of the times and those are my those are the moments for me that are mindful um and i have i engage in different practices of mindfulness usually through my body um it's hard for me to sit still and um and knowing on myself um and as a therapist for others how mindfulness in all its different forms can help both trauma um and knowing where trauma lives in the body through mindfulness and bringing awareness and attention to those places to allow them to move through. Uh, That's one form of healing trauma in the body um, through mindfulness. Another is in my mental processes as well. I remember the first year after Sela died, I, um, I started training a lot, a lot more than I used to. Um, and I found myself in the gym, um, sometimes several times a day. Um, and 
I just got lost in that process of like, oh, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to go climb. Um, and it was neither healing or building resilience. It was just me avoiding. Mm. And um, it took me a while through mindfulness to understand that, that that's what was happening. That's how I was uh, reacting to my own grief and, um, and not knowing what to do with myself. And to just take a few moments to, to breathe and bring awareness to what the fuck is going on and how am I really feeling and what am I doing about it um, allowed me to, to understand, oh, this actually isn't really serving me. I'm just here like doing these laps or this workout or whatever. And, um, and it's not what I need to be doing. Um, and so through mindfulness, that actually helped me um, gain awareness to, to those places. Um, yeah, so I really believe in that there is a lot of both healing and awareness that comes from slowing down, that comes from connecting to the breath, that comes from connecting to the body. Um, and those are my forms of mindfulness. It's mm, interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, so I do have a, a bit of a meditation practice. It's fairly sporadic and um, <laughs> not as good as I'd like it to be. It's not as strong as I'd like it to be, but, but I, I guess I'm a bit like you, try to find different ways of being mindful. Um, but I've noticed that if I do if I'm ever grieving or dealing with difficult emotions, it's, it's really important for me. Um, or it's been helpful rather to be able to sit with what is essentially just a sensation in the body, right? It's like, um, this is, this is for me, my very personal now, but, um, sometimes something like grief, we have our stories around it, right? We have our thoughts around it. And it's not to say that they're bad or anything, but when we just sit and we observe the body, we realize it's just this horribly painful <laughs> feeling somewhere, right? It's like almost being sat with like a broken leg or something, right? It's just so uncomfortable and so painful, but you can kind of watch it and observe it and go, there's still just a sensation in the body. It's not killing me. It's not actually harming me. It's this sensation that's there. And somehow by just watching it, it kind of eases somehow. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you have any experience of that. I do. Um, I actually am recovering from surgery on my ankle. And, um, and so I know both ways. A, I've been having to sit a lot recently, both because I'm injured and because I'm quarantined like everyone else. Um, and yeah, and there's discomfort and there's pain in that both physically and emotionally and mentally. And, um, and like both of us are saying, um, bringing awareness and attention to those places, it does, um, it doesn't necessarily change anything. The pain isn't going to go away in my foot or in my heart. Um, but at least I have a different relationship with it. Mm. Um, one, one quote in mindfulness that I really love is that, um, pain plus resistance equals suffering. Mm. But if I can accept it and have a different relationship with that pain, I don't necessarily have to suffer. Mm. 
there's enough suffering in the world. I've suffered enough in my life. I, I can choose to engage with it differently. Yeah, it's like I've also heard it put that you double your suffering. So totally. it's like, you know, that you've got the totally. pain and then you've got your reaction to it. So it's suffering times two instead mm-hmm. of just the pain in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I feel like a lot of that doubling of suffering comes from the fear that it will last forever. And I've experienced this with physical pain. I had this like horrible shoulder thing for ages and I absolutely doubled, if not times my suffering by 10, by adding all this fear around when will this injury end? When will the pain stop? It's going to last forever. You know, I just magnified it massively. Um, instead of if I'd probably just accepted the pain for what it was in that moment, it wouldn't, it would have been absolutely bearable. Right. Um, but I made it unbearable by piling this fear around it. And I don't have tons of experience with grief, but I imagine it possibly can be the same as the, if there's this pain, but you also are so scared about when it might end that you double the suffering in that way. Totally. Um, and I, I think that to me, when you were talking, it actually connects to, um, to what is happening now with the pandemic and the coronavirus. And a lot of people are at home, you know, and just waiting for this to end. And we can continue looking at our watch, looking at our watch, you know, like just really um, seeing this as such a negative thing. And it is like, it is, it is having such heavy impact on so many different parts of all of our lives. That is a fact that is reality. We can choose what to do with that reality. It's exactly like the pain that we were talking about. Mm. The pain is a reality and we get to choose how we engage and how do you respond and have a relationship with that reality. Um, and hopefully that can bring change in perspective, change in our mental or an emotional state. Um, yeah. yeah. Just one thing I thought of there um, was this idea of um, sometimes difficult to balance kind of being positive and proactive and supportive with this risk of kind of minimizing people's experiences or invalidating them. You know, do you ever find that, that there's, there's a fine line between those two things or that you either get accused of doing one too much or the other too much? Oh yes. I'm mostly a doer and I um, gain a lot of, empowerment by being proactive and my partner is the exact opposite she she slows down she meditates she um has her own own practice of um and her life of being more of an introverted and also very feminine in a feminine way and I'm more like, okay, let's do this. What can we do? What can I do? Like, how could, mm-hmm. not necessarily fix, but create, uh, bring change. Um, and so it's been really interesting and important to see also just in our home when we're here together, not having our own outlets, um, to see how those meet each other. And sometimes can 
um, can clash and be in friction. And sometimes uh, we complete each other and I learn from her and she learns from me and we try to integrate and bring a balance and um, understanding that it's important to slow down and to sit and to breathe. Um, and it's also important for me to to do what I got to do and keep myself mm -hmm. busy and and feel like I am um, feel meaning, feel that I'm doing something that is meaningful uh, or that is bringing meaning to my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah you feel that at home too. Yeah, honestly, I feel that that in myself right now. I feel like <laughs> a part of me. I just I'm just flip flopping by between like. Hazel, use this time to take a step away from things and reflect and learn something new and just put the stuff you've got going on aside. And then the other part of me is like, no, you need to do online coaching and you need to be productive and you can be developing this and doing this. And I, every day I wake up and it feels like I've got those two people in my head talking to each other. Um, and I think what kind of makes that worse is the fact we don't know how long this is going to go on for. Like if someone yeah. said to me, it's definitely going to be five months and then it's going to be completely over, then I would have, you know, I would be able to structure that. But really not knowing what's going to happen um, just brings all this uncertainty. Um, totally. And I want to connect exactly what you said back to grief, actually, because um, I feel like they're so connected. Grief doesn't have a timeline either and there's so much uncertainty of how it's going to unfold and the and the different ways it will unfold and manifest and just look like and feel like and um and I think that's also where it's important to find a balance between those voices in your head that exist in all of us of slowing down reflecting being with oneself um bringing healing to it and also um being in movement allowing things to shift um and that looks differently for different people but the movement part um is also important it's another healthy and important way to engage in grief and and it doesn't um it doesn't make it shorter not that it necessarily needs to be um, because there are no shortcuts in grief um and and maybe that connects to a loss that we're all experiencing like we are all in a, a loss and longing for a life that we had mm. and, and to just also normalize that um, grief can look differently um, or there are different types of grief. It's not only death. And, um, and I think we can all be in some kind of grieving, collective grieving together in like into a life in a world that once was and no longer is or will be. Um, and just understand that we all live in that reality. We all share that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe unless you've got something else to add, that might be a good place to end. Yeah, that feels good to me. Great. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation and just thanks so much for your uh, honesty and willing to share and uh, your time. Yeah, you too. Thank you. It was actually really easy to have just a conversation even though so I sweat a lot especially <laughs> when I get emotional and just like really we do, we do. <laughs> so I was feeling both like there's an ease and a flow and also like oh I'm emotional I'm like doing yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, um, so that's when I know that it feels meaningful. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting because <laughs> this is actually kind of embarrassing, but like sometimes I finish these podcasts and I notice I'm really sweaty, but I also know that the sweat has like a certain smell. Like I don't often wear deodorant oh, totally. and it's yeah. like this sort of semi-stressful <laughs> kind of <laughs> scent that I get from stressful experiences. Totally. Um, yeah. But, you're, but you're, you're right, you know, like if, if I was sat here and I was bored and I wasn't on the edge of my seat and I wasn't sweating, then it, would, it wouldn't be a good conversation. It's a meaningful conversation, I think, when there's just a little bit of stress there. So um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I could share that with you. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure.